Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Hi, welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we're going to be talking about everything as it relates to firearms, firearms uh, industry, shooting, guns, all kinds of stuff. So stick with us through the next hour, and, and I'm sure you'll have a good time. Um, we're going to start off with our collegiate spotlight, which is a, a chance for one of the universities in the country to uh, talk a little bit about their program. All of these spotlighted universities have a shooting program, which is why we're doing this. So uh, first off, I'd like to introduce Sandra Warman from Georgia Southern. Sandra, thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. I sure appreciate being invited. Well, that's good. I'm I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, I'm just going to make a, an off-the-cuff comment to start off with, and then we can talk about your school. But uh, you're the third of our spotlight to be uh, female coaches. And, and I don't know if that's something that um, is kind of standard in in the shooting sports uh, in the universities, or if it just happens to be that those that we've chosen so far have been female coaches. Um. I would say it's it's an increasing standard. Um, the there's about half of the the collegiate coaches are female, and I think that comes from the NCAA programs being co-ed. So the women and the men are shooting the same course of fire, shoulder to shoulder. Um, many of the the coaches that then go on to become the the at the collegiate level were former um, collegiate shooters themselves. So we're sort of developing our own future teaching stock as we go. That's terrific. And, and I love to point out that this is one, if not only, the only sport where women can compete on an equal basis with men side by side. Yes, it's true. It's, it's really fantastic. And so many of the top shooters are indeed women, and there are several all-women teams just like Georgia Southern's. Oh, so you, your your team is all all female. So, if you're going to consider going to school at Georgia Southern, and you want to shoot on the shooting team, you best be a female. That's correct. Okay, okay. Well, that's good to know right off the bat because we have all kinds of of parents that have children that shoot. Um, one of the things is you just don't get a lot of exposure for kids who want to go on to college and get an education and be able to shoot at the same time with the ability to get some of that pre-training for the Olympic-style shooting and and maybe an opportunity to even try out for the Olympic team. So why don't you tell us about your school, what kind of program you have, what type of shooting you do, um, what kind of uh, scholastic uh, um, programs you have, and so we can get a little better acquainted with Georgia Southern. Certainly. Well, uh, we do the Olympic-style precision rifle shooting here, so that's twenty-two and air rifle. Um, right now in the country, air rifle is a, an increasingly popular sport, and that's because of a pellet gun, one seven seven caliber, is very easy to set up. So many kids are coming to us with primarily air rifle um, or sporter experience, which is a not quite the Olympic level precision style of air rifle shooting, um, but it's it's a path to get there. 
Um, the small bore shooting is at 50 feet. The air rifle is at 10 meters or 33 feet, and both of them are Olympic sports. Um, per edict of the NCAA, there are 3.6 scholarships available uh, per program. Um, in our case, we've got a team of seven, so that works out very nicely in terms of being feasibly able to come to college and be able to get some kind of scholarship money. Other places have larger teams and perhaps allot them in different ways, but at least for for Georgia Southern, um, that's certainly a a bright spot in our program. There's a state-of-the-art 50-foot range that we use um, that's indoor, and I point that out because the program that first got started here was really a build it and it will come kind of a strategy by the athletic director, um, Tom Kleinlin. He got the program in place and the, the team shot in a, a shooting shack, as we call it now, and it's, it's literally a storage building without even a fully encompassed roof. So after that, um, the Shooting Sports Education Center, which, uh, as I mentioned, has a, a rifle range, and then also a state-of-the-art archery program uh, came to be, and we are offered now a permanent home and with facilities director um, Matt Horst uh, helping make sure we have everything we need. Well, thanks for mentioning the archery as well, because people who tend to lean towards uh, the shooting sports also have an affinity for um, archery as well. So that's good information for the people that uh, are interested in in maybe furthering their education with archery as well. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned air rifle. Um, is that strictly prone? I mean, standing. That's correct. At the collegiate level, it is all 60 shots in the standing position, and the small bore or 22 discipline is three position, prone, standing, kneeling, 20 record shots in each position. Uh, so that's good good information because uh, I have one other question too. The air rifle, is there a particular rifle that is used more often than any other? Uh, not a particular brand. It 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 is an Olympic style precision rifle. So Anschutz, Finework Bow, Walther. Um, these are all brand names the, of this kind of of shooting firearm. And just for our listeners' uh, information, when they think of a pellet rifle, like I had a Sheridan uh, Silver Streak when I was growing up. We're not talking about that kind of air rifle. We're talking about a precision uh, and not inexpensive rifle. That's correct. Um, they are around 40, probably 4,200 with sights. Um, and I always joke that uh, even the space shuttle doesn't have this many adjustments. They, they, the butt plate <laughs> literally comes with pitch, yaw, and roll. So getting it set up for the first time is, is definitely a, a sit-down with the, the owner's manual and uh, every tool in the toolbox. You know, that's interesting because you think of being a three-position rifle as a small bore would, would have to be much more adjustable than just a standard offhand uh, rifle. But I guess they give you everything you could possibly think of and, and then some. It's true, yes. What's that old saying, just enough rope to hang yourself? That's So it is with all of these adjustments. Now, one more question, and I just want to get this out there. Um, with, with small bore, there's ammunition issues, and that could have a big impact on how well a person shoots. With the air rifle, it, the, the pellets, I'm sure there's a, a standardized pellet and, and that all, but 
I would say even the amount of pressure each time you cock the gun and that is there much to worry about once you buy one of these $4,200 rifles? It, will it be at, you know, allow you to compete at the top if you're, if you're capable of it? It will. The top rifles, like we've been discussing, are actually compressed air types. Um, they, you have a cylinder that you refill every, before every time you shoot. Um, and that provides the consistency. The old sidecock rifles or even the CO2 rifles are kind of from, from the past at this point. Um, you did mention, though, about um, ammunition and pellets, and while we certainly do um, ammo testing for the 22s, also it goes with the, 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 the air rifles as well. Um, we test different lots of pellets and different brands of pellets and see which one has the better grouping. Well, Sandra, it really sounds like you've got a handle on your team and, and how to put the, the best team uh, um, out there when you get ready to compete uh, in, at the NCAA level. I really want to thank you for being on the show and sharing that information with us. Um, can you give our listeners the website uh, that they can get some more information and how to contact you if they want to be recruited? Oh, certainly. Um, they can uh, Georgia Southern Eagles uh, rifle team. If they Google that, we'll come right up. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you being on. I appreciate you having me. Take care. Bye. Yeah, thanks for listening to this uh, Collegiate Spotlight. It, it's so cool. I, it sometimes runs a little bit longer than we anticipated because there's so much information that I think it's important for all of our listeners to have. So we sometimes uh, go over a little bit. Uh, today we spent a lot more time on air rifle than we have before, but that's an interesting part of, of the shooting sports, and I, I think that's something that, that some people would say, hmm, I didn't know that. Uh, $4,200, hmm, I didn't know that. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to move right on into our next guest. Uh, Rex Tybor is a, a long-range rifle enthusiast, a blogger, podcaster. You know, if you've been hanging out on YouTube watching anything related to firearms, you probably caught one or more of his podcasts. Rex, thanks for being on the show. Howdy. Hey, it's nice to have me on. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're probably used to this, and you're going to probably have to help help carry me along. You know, you've had a lot more experience at this than I have. But uh, let's start with, um, you know, who you are, where you grew up, what got you into the shooting sports, and why this is such a passion for you. Sure. Well, I suppose it was kind of an organic thing for me. My father was kind of a hunting guy and uh, very much a, of a uh, far, firearms enthusiast. We live up in the northern United States in the Great Plains region. And so as a little guy, I mean, even maybe four or five years old, I remember going out to the local, uh, we live in a very small town, you know, 800 people, but we went out to the local shooting range, and I was uh, just a tiny little guy, and we had this Ruger M77 6-millimeter Remington, and I remember shooting bowling pins with my, my father holding the rifle, and I would kind of get the sights lined up, and then I'd do the trigger pull, you know, in this time. And uh, then we, we went to the 73 single-action Colt revolvers, and I uh, just, I kind of grew up as, as early as I can remember being, you know, shooting center fire rifles and pistols and 22s and air rifles and everything like that. So it's an organic part of the culture and, and a huge part of the country, but especially up here too. Uh, so I just kind of was born into it. And uh, it's something that there's uh, a slight to be a degree of competition between my father and myself and my brother and uh, some of my cousins and stuff, especially when you're deer hunting, you know, you want to make the cooler shot or you want to do it better or, and uh, just kind of 
that, that was the lifestyle up here. So it's something um, that we just kind of grew up in. Also grew up in kind of a musician's family. So we had an interesting perspective on how the universe works. If you mathematically subdivide music into its infinite components, you start to realize that things have infinite complexity to them. And so when you kind of grow up with that artistic mindset, kind of being aware of how big the subtleties are in any system, uh, it became evident that if you apply that to other things in life, uh, you'd get a lot more for your money. And so that's kind of how I've looked at, uh, you know, anything uh, from guitar playing to playing the rifle, kind of the same story. It's the more you pay close uh, attention to detail, the more you can milk out of it, and then pretty soon uh, you can unlock the hidden potential and pretty much... It's one thing I say a lot. Uh, people have nice deer rifles laying around in the, in the closet or in the gun cabinet or whatever, and a lot of those guys maybe don't realize the potential that that piece of equipment inherently has in it right now at this time. And if they unlock that potential through you know, studying it very closely and, and getting everything right and getting the details right and learning ballistics and, and getting the exact right equipment, uh, you know, they'd be surprised what they can pull off with a, with a rifle like that. So... Something that kind of organically started, and uh, when I was uh, going to college, um, it was eight years after I graduated from high school, I did some other things there in that time, but uh, when, I, when I was going to college, I started doing kind of a hobby channel, which was music and other things like that, commentary, political commentary, Bible commentary, whatever, you know, good old Americana type stuff. I started uploading a couple videos on precision rifle shooting, and uh they generated so many questions, because we're shooting at like 11 and 1,200 yards just kind of nonchalantly having a good time. It, it generated so many questions, I got exhausted trying to answer them written form, so I started doing a tutorial series that was supposed to be like maybe three or five parts long. <laughs> and uh, once you start actually teaching it comprehensively, you realize, holy smokes, man, it's going to take hundreds of hours to explain all the cool details. So it became a very comprehensive course uh, 101 different parts to that particular series, and then it evolved into reviews on uh, fortes, maybe rifle scopes or equipment selection for long-range precision rifle shooting, uh, how to organize ballistic data, and then and now it's evolved into it just in this last year, uh, not only a, a fun podcast show, but we're also providing commercial training now too as well, and that's been going awesome. So we've been having a good time and keeping real busy. Boy, I'm going to have to use some of that, I'm sure. Uh, one of the interesting things is I find out is that, you know, though you grew up with guns and you actually were an entertainer. I mean, uh, I guess you can put <laughs> yourself you in, into that category. You, you started performing, and I say that with all sincerity, when you talk about presenting anything on the Internet, whether it be in a blog form or in video form uh, as a podcast, it's entertainment. That, that's what the value is, is one, yep. you want to be able to entertain them, but you also want to be able to educate them, too, because that's, that's how we learn about things that we would have never had an opportunity to learn about before the Internet came along. So Absolutely. I think that's interesting that you're basically an entertainer that happens to like guns, too. <laughs> And it's weird how it works out. Sometimes those things are more conducive to teaching a concept, right? Because I'm also an engineer by trade, and so I understand the engineering concepts and, and read in scientific journal articles and applying physics and things like that. However, when you think about the psychology of trying to communicate those super complex topics to normal folks like myself when I was learning this as a young guy, you have to anticipate how their mind is going to absorb 
uh, material most efficiently and uh, sometimes do it in a kind and fun way uh, using metaphor, using various mechanisms is, is the best way to communicate it. So that's kind of one of the cool things we have going on is um, we really, you know, we've been told, and I don't want to, you know, get big for my britches, but we've been told that we do a very good job explaining how stuff works. And so people walk away not only just mechanically carrying out the, the, the pro, uh, processes of any, of any concept like robotically, but they dynamically understand, you know, in a deeper level what, exactly what they're doing. So that's, there's really no substitution for actually understanding what you're doing rather than just following uh, a standardized procedure. And that's a, a higher level of understanding which we're trying to achieve in, in the style that we communicate it. So when we get dudes out there on the range and we start shooting, uh, that's something that we apply and we individually read each person and see what avenue of approach we need to come in on to help communicate exactly what they're doing and anticipate what they're maybe struggling with or maybe what they're curious about in terms of refining their uh, firing position or their, their fundamentals or maybe a misunderstanding of how to apply uh, ballistic data, things like that. So it's, been, it's, it's yielded really good fruit, and it's, that's why it's been so fun for me and the crew as well. I think that's a perfect opportunity for me to bring a guest into our studio. He's been he- sitting here listening to us. Ian Klim is here with me, who's the uh, 2017 National F-Class FTR uh, champion uh, and obviously knows a lot about long-range shooting. But I think the thing that, that really um, clicked with me is when you're talking about you know, being able to teach and, you know, I know Ian's been in a position a lot of times with people say, you know, I'm new to this sport. What can you tell me in the next 15 minutes that's going to make any difference in the way I shoot? And it's difficult to come up with something like that. Ian, anything that you can tell somebody that might help them the first 15 minutes you get to spend with them? You know, hi, Rex. Uh, I've been uh, watching some of your videos. Good, good, good to good to commune with uh, another engineer by trade who's an effective communicator. I think we're a dying breed, uh, yeah, or maybe may, maybe a growing breed. Uh, we'll see. But uh, you know, to answer your question, Kelly, um, I really try to pick out one or two wildly important goals. I call them. So it's easy to to you know break out the lexicon and sort of uh, you know baffle someone with uh, fifty dollar words, but I'll try to pick out one or two important things because most people's attention span, you know, it's it's about that 15-minute uh, half-life. So if I can get one or two really important things across that they can go home, practice, next time I run into them, you know, it'll be one or two different things. But um, less is more, quality over quantity. That's That's what I try to do. Thanks, Ian. I want you to step in anytime you hear something that, that you want to comment on. Feel free to do so. I've got a question for... Uh, Rex, uh, you know, I, I'm cheating because I have a list of things here that you listed on your bio that you might want to talk about. And some of these things sound like an entertainer. <laughs> so I want you to explain to me how the joy of discipline relates to long range shooting. The joy of discipline? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it, it's something, it's a, it's a personality trait and a character trait, honestly. Um, that to master anything, you have to truly not only throw your entire heart at it and your entire, what you, you really have to want to do it, but you also have to maintain that focus to really chase all the rabbits down all the trails <laughs> to find out if there's something at the end or not, but also to, uh, you know, to fully understand the concepts. And so it's, it requires tenacity and discipline. It takes a lot of time. 
And uh, there's really no substitute for experience, too. And that's another thing, too. You know, understanding some of the scientific concepts is relatively simple, but implementing them uh, can take, take especially uh, with wind calls and things like that, uh, it takes the discipline and tenacity to keep the nose to the grindstone, so to speak, to really get out there and, and develop uh, the intuitive ability to read the wind and, uh, and make proper wind calls. So it's just, uh, it applies to everything. But there's a lot of joy to discipline, I think, that, uh, you know, something that humans are thirsty for, even though they don't know it, especially teenagers and kids are looking for those walls. So I think shooting and shooting sports and the discipline of shooting being such a serious thing that it is, particularly when you consider the historical ramifications in, in terms of liberty preservation here in the United States, is a very important thing we need to pass down, and it is a discipline. And being able to channel, especially like when you talk about kids and stuff, I know how rambunctious I was when I was a little guy, um, being able to channel all that crazy energy that they normally use bouncing off the walls into something like that is an incredible way to uh, develop discipline because they're only going to be good at it if they learn to, to control themselves. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's just one direction a guy can take that part in. And I don't remember what I was talking about when I wrote that down on the computer, but <laughs> I, I can attest. Sure. I can attest to the fact that uh, some of the stuff you just can't teach without hours and hours on the, the range and doing it. Wind reading is, is one thing. You can hear everybody tell you what values are what and how to assess that and do it until you look through a scope, watch the, the grass or the, the bushes or, you know, the uh, debris flying in the air to uh, determine what the wind is. You really don't ever learn that. I, I'll give you a, a personal experience. I was on an antelope hunt earlier uh, last weekend, and and I I shot an antelope at 600 yards, uh, six five two eighty four with a 140 grain burger, and uh, it was I read it as five to seven miles an hour gusting to ten. Um, I gave it a minute of angle um, for the wind, and I missed. I mean, I just missed off yep. the front of his chest. And so I called a good friend of mine who's probably shot more animals than I know. I said, Bob, uh, Bob Beck, I was talking to him. I said, Bob, how, what's the value for uh, a five to seven mile an hour wind with a 140 grain bullet at, at 2,795 feet per second? He said, oh, that's a minute and a half. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> well, I knew it was probably a minute and a half by how much I missed by, but see, he had done it so much. He knew that answer right away. And I yeah. guessed, and I just happened to guess wrong because I haven't spent enough time out there reading wind. Uh, same thing with uh, F-class stuff. You have to be able to really depend on that coach to have had the experience to be able to read those conditions and relate that to the shooters. And I know that Ian's had that uh, conversation with me about how important it is that you trust the coach. Yep, it's important. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to hog your airspace, Ben. I'm sorry. Uh, hey, you're the guest, so uh, anything you want to say, you just throw oh, it in okay. there. Um, and, and probably the last thing we have time for, because we've only got a few minutes going, uh, but um, you talk about creating a viable field expedient long-range shooter. Uh, yeah. That means somebody who can be successful at shooting long-range in the field, not necessarily just on the bench under given circumstances. Uh, you know, everybody, if you could get in a wind tunnel and, and shoot 1,000 yards in a 1,000-yard wind tunnel, 
you could be pretty successful at it. You don't have to be really good, but you take and add all the conditions in. I think that's where I'm assuming that's what this comment means. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to that, but to really break it down in simple terms, a lot of people have an over-focus maybe just on equipment. Some other folks might have more too much of a focus just on uh, external ballistics or how to organize their data there. And some folks might only emphasize fundamentals marksmanship. But to be viable, you have, it's like a tripod, right? You have three legs. For that thing to stand by itself, especially in any kind of uh, shaky situations, you have to have all three legs pretty much equal length and solidly mounted. Uh, so you have to implement all those different things at the same time together, um, and they have to be sound. And, and whatever the weakest one of those elements is is going to be that weak, weak link in that chain that makes the whole thing fall apart. So when we're teaching uh, long-range shooting for you know field expediency and viability, which means you can survive in the field for a long time you know, in terms of being proficient still, uh, we like to teach the very, very, very basic raw elements of the science so that they're not just memorizing numbers off a table or punching things in, you know, through a, a ballistic calculator and not understanding what the heck they're trying to accomplish. We actually want them to know uh, why, why they're adjusting up or down for barometric pressure changes or, you know, different things that are going on, muzzle velocity variation. So through a, a comprehensive understanding of the science, truly, even like with the internal ballistics, we focus on that a lot too, understanding why the equipment has to be the way it is because there's so many things in the complex system when you're talking about equipment selection on a rifle uh, that can potentially screw you up. And unless you have a checklist to memorize that that's not true viability, you want to understand what's going on because if something that happens that's not on the checklist that's still going to screw you up happens, you're going to have to identify that. So to be truly viable, you truly have to understand the science, or the science behind it. And then apply that and uh, be able to, that's, that's what you need to do to be able to problem shoot by yourself uh, to where you don't need to ask other people or call them on the phone or, or do other things. But at a certain point, um, you will attain that, a, a greater level of viability. None of us are there completely. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm far from there for sure. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to learn. Uh, but it's really an implementation of everything um, you know, proportionally, so you're not just serving one and forgetting about something else entirely. And Those are all uh, good also points, with Rex. that, we like to Rex? get a, uh, we like to reinforce things that sometimes in modern technology people have an over dependence on digital systems. And in the field, as maybe you guys have had happen to you when you're doing long range shooting, is you know you don't want to be a long range shooter only as long as the batteries are good. And then when hey, the batteries Rex? are gone, then you can't shoot anymore. That's not viability. So hey, we reps. teach people how to organize their data in different ways. You've got to have a primary system, a secondary system, a tertiary system, and have at least three different systems, maybe three or four backups, and also intimately understanding what the heck it is you're doing out there so that when something breaks down or you lose a component or something weird happens, you can instantaneously kind of intuitively know which way to go under pressure, which is a whole other dynamic, because you're only going to yeah. perform one-tenth as good in the real world as you will when everything's hunky-dory, you know what I mean, out on the and, range. And that's something that not a lot of people teach. Hey, Rex, I'm sorry, we're out of time. Um, we haven't asked you to give uh, any information on how people can get better familiar with you. So uh, in closing, why don't you give us uh, your your website, any uh, um, social media that you want uh, our listeners to know about? Sure, no problem. Uh, kind of a, a long, crazy name on YouTube. Never anticipated it to be a business, but Tborosaurus Rex channel on YouTube, like Tibor and the Dinosaur Rex, like Tiborosaurus Rex, 
or you could look up Sniper 101 is one of the popular series uh, we have put on there. Also, a guy could uh, look up www.rexreviews.org or even Rex Reviews on YouTube, and you'll find all kinds of stuff. We have a cool podcast show. We talk about God, guns, and rock and roll. We certainly do keep it entertaining. You get to listen to my music. <laughs> and we well, that sounds, that's the main you thing. You know, that's awesome. Um, you know, we tried to get um, Ted Nugent on our show, and, and and as soon as we didn't agree to advertise on his show, it, it seemed like he had a... a a challenge and couldn't make it. So, but oh, no. uh, you know, <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that you're combining all the things that I love and, and I'll be sure to stay tuned and, and keep an eye on what you're doing. Thanks for being on the show, Rex. Hey, I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Nice meeting yeah, you guys. You take care. You're a great guest. Appreciate it. And yep. I want to ask all of our listeners to stay tuned for the next uh, couple minutes while we take a commercial break and we'll be right back. For exciting video content live and on demand, visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Oh, that was an interesting segment with Rex Tibor. Really uh, enjoyed having him on. Now we're going to have our IT and social media expert, Cooper Balestrino on to give you a little bit of uh, information about what's going on in the next couple of weeks. Hey guys, actually we have this huge pre-Black Friday sale happening uh, around November 12th, so make sure to sign up for our newsletters because we are really excited about this sale. It's something we've never offered to our customers before and we're excited to see how well it does uh, moving forward so that we can hopefully do another one. How huge is it? It's very huge, so huge. Um, any any idea about what uh, we can 
tell our listeners they can expect? Yes, absolutely. So we're actually giving you guys the option to customize a stock with a discount. All you will need to do is receive our email. Remember the coupon code that we give you. And when you call in to make that order for uh, specific stocks that we will let you uh, choose from, uh, as, as soon as you mention that, then you will go ahead and get that discount that we're not ready to uh, tell you about yet. Awesome. Uh, that reminds me, I'm going to s- step in here and, and let everybody know something really big. Um, MC3stocks.com should have their online store up the first of next week. And what that means is you'll be able to pre-order your l- legend which is the A5 pattern stock, or the Tradition, which is the GameScout pattern stock. And along with that pre-order, you'll get a $50 gift card to be used on any of the Macmillan stores. So you could use it on Macmillan USA, you could use it on mc3stocks.com, and soon to come, you would be able to use it on elrhq.com. That's something you probably haven't heard of yet, and uh, we have no information for you. So don't call me, ask them. You'll know in due time. So that's interesting stuff that we got going on, really exciting. Now, I'm really excited to, to introduce our next guest. I can't wait. We've been trying to get uh, this guy on for a long time. Very important guy. And uh, he's, it's been difficult to get him on, but I'm glad he's here today. Uh, Rob Latham, he's, if you know anything about the shooting sports at all, he doesn't need any introduction. Rob, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we finally were able to hook it up. I have one question for you, though, Kelly. Do I still get to use the Rob Latham, I've known Kelly for 30 years, ordering program for McMillan? Yes, you you can always do that. You are one of the few that have a direct line to me to order anything you want, anytime. There we go. Just making sure that was still in place. (laughs) Just don't don't put it out on the... Oh, we're on the air. Oh, Oh, it's on the air. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Okay, well, let's move right along. Okay. Why don't you tell us about, you know, you, where you grew up, how you grew up, why why firearms have been such a big part of your life for so long? I can't remember why firearms wouldn't be a big part of my life, Kelly. I mean, being from this area, I live in Mesa, Arizona, still where I was born uh, when I was a kid. I wouldn't call it the Wild West, but, you know, you drove three or four miles out of town, and that's where we went shooting. So I just, I mean, for me, firearms and shooting and reloading was all just, you know, that's, that's what we did. I can't really imagine how it wouldn't have been in place. So because of that, uh, since the day, my earliest memories, I don't remember anything before shooting, Kelly. I mean, it was, you know, come home from school and grab guns and walk a couple miles out of town and shoot everything we saw because it was just nothing out there. Now there's houses. I live further out of town now than, than where we used to shoot when I was a kid, but that's what the start was. And somewhere along the line... I just became fascinated with firearms, every type. I, I, there was a point when I was probably 20 years old that I had every, you know, there, there wasn't the Internet. So I had every gun digest, for those of you that remember those, and uh, uh, Herder's Outdoor Books. I had every specification of every model memorized. I read every single thing I could get and uh, shot as often as I could, as much as I could, wherever I could. You know, you mentioned something that I think I find odd because almost nobody that I've talked to over the course of the last year on interviewing him for this radio show has mentioned that they were really 
gung-ho about reloading. That usually comes along after you've took taken up shooting. But I remember you telling me about, you know, I asked you, did you play sports when you were a kid? Were you, no, you said, no, I was working so I could buy reloading equipment uh, and components so you could reload and go shoot more. Uh, how was it that, that reloading became such an integral part of your shooting experience so early? Well, I grew up in it. My dad reloaded by the time I was large enough. Uh, yeah, large enough, tall enough, strong enough to, to shoot, it was pretty much the standards of, well, if you're going to shoot, you're going to load. And that process was, was even more than just the reloading of, of, of empty cases. At that point, I, would, uh, I used to uh, uh, cast my own bullets and size them and would load everything. We had a little single-line press. And whatever I got loaded up through the course of the week was what we got to shoot on the weekend. It was... I still remember the first time I saw my dad buy a box of factory ammo. I'm sure he did. You know, we always bought we bought shotgun shells a lot, although we loaded most of that. And of course, we we bought 22 ammo, but all 38, 37, 9 millimeter, 45, 44 magnum, 30, 30, 30 six, all that ammo we loaded at 45, 70. We loaded every one of those. So it was an oddity and a luxury to see a box of 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 factory ammo. We were going shooting one day. This I, I don't know whenever I don't know when this is. Had to be I must have been ten or twelve. And we stopped at a sporting goods store. It was on Gilbert Road. I don't, I'm sure it's not there anymore. In downtown Gilbert, where all those restaurants are. And uh, my dad bought a box of Supervelle 327 ammo. We, he had a two and a half inch 19. And I still to this day think. Three quarters of that box is still sitting in all his stuff because it was so expensive compared to what we were shooting that that it was like a luxury item. So we're not going to shoot all those. Well, what did we get them for? He says, well, just to test and see what it's like compared to what we do. But so I didn't know any better, Kelly. I mean, it's if you wanted to shoot, you loaded, and that's just the way it was. So you know, it's just, just it was odd not to be reloading. I know. Uh, um, because I know you, and let's just assume that there's one person out there who doesn't know who Rob Latham is. You mentioned the first, I don't know, seven or eight calibers you mentioned were pistol, ca- pistol calibers. So even at an early age, you probably migrated towards shooting pistol. Uh, how was it that, that pistol became who Rob Latham was in, in terms of, of your accomplishments in, in the shooting sports? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. I get I get asked how I got where I was, but it's never really like that. Um, well, uh, I think the mobility of the handguns always interested me dramatically. Uh, a lot of it again was my parents. So when we went out hiking, camping, whatever it was, everybody had pistols. Kelly, I mean, I got a twenty-two pistol was my twelfth birthday, and thirty-seven was my sixteenth birthday, and up till then, I shot all of his, and my mom and dad used to do it before the kids, and when we were still young, they did an incredible amount of hiking. Mom and dad were hooked up with this group of guys that were always wandering around in the superstitions, hiking, looking for the Lost Dutchman gold mine. Well, when you're carrying all that stuff and you weren't actually going hunting, they'd always carry handguns for, you know, for defensive purposes. And my mom had a Smith and Wesson Model 15, and my dad had a 620 or Model 29. 
and I, I have both those guns now, um, but I just kind of grew up in pistols, so we used tons of shotguns, of course, for, for dove hunting. That was, that was one of the big things we did, and then, of course, we had lots of rifles uh, for deer hunting, but when it came to just basic plinking, it always seemed to turn into pistols, and I think part of that was because of the mobility. Part of it was that was the guns they carried around. I wouldn't say my mom and dad were carrying them for self-defense by today's standards, but it was, you know, the idea of going out and going hiking. And going it might out. have been a bear out in the superstitions. Right, or people. My dad always said it's the human animals I'm more scared of, you know, because when you're out there, you know, there's, there's no calling 911. Nobody's going to fly in and help you. It's when you come across the scumbags, you know, and he was always, that's funny, he was always concerned about that. And he had a forty four Magnum from, I think, the year they came out. And so for me, handguns were just kind of the norm. I grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a family of handguns, and I think that's the reason, is just the mobility. Of, we, we didn't hunt with them. We hunted with rifles, but, but we always had them, and they were cheaper to shoot and easier to shoot, and we could shoot them at, you know, closer ranges and, closer into town, and I think that's just kind of what fed the handgun frenzy for me. I want to mention, because um, I, I think it's important, you've talked a lot about your dad. Uh, he was famous in his own right uh, as a photographer and, and a terrific guy, and I just want to let you know that, that we miss him, and you know, it's, it's great to hear the stories about how close you guys were. Yeah, it's, it was, you know, I think back, I think back about it, uh, now that he's gone, he died in 07, and, you know, I miss him all the time because of everything that I wanted to do, but we had a great time of it, Kelly. I mean, uh, I think my dad was never more proud of me in anything I ever did as, as, he, as I was when I put myself in a position where he got to take pictures of me. He was a photographer, so the fact that he got to go to the shooting matches for, I think, handgunner most of the time, and... I think I think winning or losing, he he didn't care too much about that. But the fact that I was pertinent to the event so that he got to photograph me, I think always gave him a great amount of uh, satisfaction. And, and that, I, I I really miss you know all the things I planned on doing when I got older, you know, when he was old, old, and I was old. You know, that's that's kind of what I miss. But, yeah, you know. and that's really cool. We miss him too. Uh, I want you to, we only have about 15 minutes, so I don't want you to give all of your accolades, but I want to want you to give that one guy out there who doesn't know who you are the opportunity to understand when we talk about Rob Latham and why everybody in the shooting sports, when they mention that name, it's with such reverence. Just give some highlights of some of the, the shooting that you've done. Well, it's got to be for longevity. Lots of people have won lots of things, and, and I've won a lot of stuff. But in, in reality, uh, it's got to be the longevity. You know, I shot my first practical pistol competition in 78, and I won my first national championship with IPSC in 83, and I won my last one uh, last year. And I won an NRA national this year. So, I mean, I guess it's longevity. I mean, I've, I've, I've won lots of matches, but, I've, but I've, I'm just an enthusiast, Kelly. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm just another plinker that got really good and found a place that I wanted to do it regardless. Winning or losing, I think I'd still be out there shooting, but that's probably you know, the longevity issue more than just the quantity. Not many people stay in a sport 
and stay competitive, you know, for 30 or 40 years. This well, point, you've been on top as long as I've known you. Well. And you're still on top. Well, you're still the guy to beat. Every time somebody walks in a, in a pistol match and see your name on the registration, you're the guy they're trying to beat. Yeah, that kind of sucks part of the time, though, because... <laughs> It's great to be the target, but I, I do. I I am looking forward to time when the pressure isn't there for everybody to beat on me. Let them beat on each other, and let me have a good time too. <laughs> oh come on! You put more pressure on yourself than anybody else does. I've shot in a, I've shot next to you with on a shotgun range where you say, "Oh, well, I don't want to compete in shotgun because if I do, it'll just take all the fun out of it." But you're still serious about winning. Every time you step up to the podium for anything, you want to win. I can't help that. It doesn't matter what we're doing. Whatever. I, I guess, if anything, in my life, it's the fact that I love to compete, even from very early years, you know, track and field and basketball and whatever it was. I love the battle. I kill you. I love the battle. I don't know how else to put it. I want to tell our listeners that you're a hell of an athlete. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about what you did when you were younger, but even as you're older, you know, um, motocross, uh, bicycles. I mean, you've done a lot of things that that indicate that you're an athlete, not just a guy who learned how to shoot a pistol, which I think, you know, because of the, the action and the, the movement and everything that's required to, to shoot the different types of pistol disciplines that you have, yeah, you have to be a good athlete. I mean, there's no question about it. You couldn't not be a good athlete and be a really good shooter. But, you know, I, most people don't understand. You could have, because of your drive and desire to win and to compete, you would have been at the top of any particular sport you picked, you know, as long as you stayed healthy. It, it, was, it was basketball and track when I was in high school. I just knew that's, that's where I was going to go. I had plans and then and, and excelled in some of that. And I'll be honest with you, shooting that <laughs> killed those drives. Because the first time I shot a, a, a practical pistol competition, which was my Christmas of my senior year, so 78, um, I, right then and there, I mean, that is all I ever wanted to do. At that point, I'm like, man, I need to get a job so I can afford to shoot more and go do this. It, you know, it, it just, it was almost like overnight I didn't care about basketball anymore. And all I wanted to do was, was go shooting. And here's where it's taken me. I'm going to ask you a question now. I had Lonis Wigger on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he made a comment about his shooting. He said, it took me about five years to learn how to shoot, and it took me about another five years to learn how to win. It obviously didn't take you that long, but did you, did you have to make a conscious decision about how to win a match and, and what you needed to do to win, not just, I'm going to shoot as good as I can, and what happens, happens? Yes and no. Uh, Lones is, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of all time, and has done a good job of identifying how he made things work. I really think of it this way. I started shooting, I can't remember not shooting, Kelly, so, so, so the fact that every time I shot, I was always trying to do it as well as I could. I, but if I shot my first practical pistol match in 1978, but I'd been shooting for 10 years pistols, I... I was a pretty good shot by the time I was 15 or 16 years old by anybody's standards. So by the time I was 18, I was a great shooter. So when I got to my first match, I was a pretty good shot, but didn't really know how to how to apply all the competing or, or uh, apply.
apply all the skills in, in competing. And the way I like to explain is I went to the first national in 1981, and I didn't have any idea how I was going to do. So I just focused on doing my business and being tough, just like when I was running track and playing basketball, and ignore what everybody else is doing and do my own thing, and I ended up 10th. Well, that surprised me. And then the next year, I got really cocky in those early years. I came back the next year saying, like, oh, man. I mean, I saw all the places I could make, make improvements. I trained hard, practiced all the time. I went into the 82 Nationals with the concept of just whipping everybody's ass. Well, the reality sets in that that wasn't the way to make it work, and I shot the worst finish I've ever had in a National before since that year. And, not, and the failure drove me harder than the successes ever did. So in, after the 82 year, I went back to, listen, you need to you know, get out of your own comfort zone here and you have to find a way of making this work when you're not happy with how things are going. And that drive then, and which is the same year I met Brian Ennis, which you know, our training regimen put together uh, you know, a dynasty that, that, that's never happened for since. And... Because of that, those two events, the, the doing well the first time when I didn't expect it and doing horrible the year I expected to dominate changed my outlook. And then I realized, well, I'm going to have to focus on making the things happen and doing the best I can in the circumstance. I'm a great shot, and I'm a tough competitor, so focus what I'm doing. So the pieces came together for me really, really quick. But I was already fairly tough as a, as a, as a person competing because I'd I mean, there's nothing harder than running cross-country, and you're always pushing yourself really, really hard. There's a lot of logistics in those long-distance races. You know, do you stay up to the front? Do you lead? Do you follow? And, I mean, that made you tough and made you learn about strategy. And in, in pistol shooting, there's a lot of strategy, too. There's times to take chances and times not to. And I think those are the events that really went into place that I just applied life lessons I'd had from, from other sports. And I think I liked shooting more than anything else I'd ever done, so it made it easy for me to work at it. If that makes any sense at all. You made uh, you mentioned Brian Enos. Uh, he, he's not competing anymore, is he? No, he quit on me. He uh, a few well, it's been more than a few years ago. I think when he came to the realization that what he was doing at that point was being a shooter when all he really ever wanted to do was test and practice. And, and he didn't need the matches to validate. Or well, I shouldn't say that. He needed the matches to validate his training, but his interest was always in the development of skill, learning things. He was always that guy. And uh, we were at the right place at the right time and pushed each other harder than anybody before or since. And our training sessions, I mean, I wish we could have videotaped them because it was... It was like sparring. It's like having two, you know, top-level boxers sparring, Kelly. It was, or maybe some, a couple of jiu-jitsu guys. It, it was the same kind of thing. We're learning from each other the whole time, and it just pushed us to a level nobody has. And when he retired, uh, at that point, he'd already moved on to a different company, so we didn't really train anymore, but we'd stayed close friends that whole period of time. But that was the, that was the formative thing that made me tougher, to be able to learn how to shoot, because if I screwed up, oh, hell, I didn't have to screw up. He could beat me if I didn't screw up. So it puts you in a place to really, really focus on making the performance as good as is possible. And he, we drove each other. He was slow and accurate, and I was fast and inaccurate. We came together at the right time, and we both learned from that and both improved. Well, the reason that I brought that up is because you talked about your longevity. Um, Brian got whatever he needed out of the 
competitive sport and moved on. Uh, you're still getting something that drives you out of competing, and that's why you're still shooting. That's why you're still shooting at the top of your game in a lot of the sports that you shoot in. Um, uh, you know, I, I've seen you shoot Sportsman Teen Challenge. I've seen you shoot shotgun. Um, I, I think if you laid down with an F-class rifle and because you've never shot uh, a thousand yard competitively, you'd have to have a wind coach. But with a wind coach, you could probably shoot extremely well uh, until maybe three weeks until you learned how to read the wind because you're super fast at learning just about anything you want to learn. Well, I do love shooting, and that certainly sounds like an offer. Do you know anybody that might have a rifle like that that would work for that sport? Well, I actually do. So if you want to shoot an F-class match, I've got the rifle, I've got the gear, I've got the bipod, I've got the ammo, everything you could possibly need. All you have to do is say, Kelly, I'm going to shoot in this match on this day, and I'll get that, that, all that stuff to the range for you. That sounds fun. So you're saying I can't use my A5 stock 7-twist Krieger barrel 243 shooting a 115 D-tax? You could, and that would be great for mid-range probably, but uh, <laughs> you know, when you get out to 1,000 yards and if it happens to be a little windy at all, you might want to shoot something else. Hey, Rob, this is Ian Clem, Kelly's guest. Uh, I shoot FTR, and that would actually put you into F-open, which would make me really happy to not have to compete <laughs> against Rob See, I don't even know what all the rules are for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, FTR is 308. Period. That's all. You got 308, and you can't shoot anything else. Open, you can shoot anything you want to, and up to 338 caliber, I think, yep. uh, with just no muzzle brake. So, uh, if you can take the punishment, you can shoot it. Uh, I think, th from my gathering, I think uh, 300 WSM is probably the hardest kicking gun anybody shoots with. Yeah, I I'm, I yeah. become kind of a pansy as I got older from the the many thousands of of, of rounds I've absorbed in recoil, so that's one of the things I love about the 243s, but, but whatever's best, Kelly, you're going to know you're into that. I've seen this. Yeah. Stuff. I think I, I, last time we were out shooting shotgun together, you had this special light load that you were shooting, which you said, nah, I don't like to get the, you know, a regular 12-gauge shotgun. I'm, I like this light load. You had some sort of special light load because you're such a pansy. I am. It's totally true. I shoot a how much, so my, I shoot a KD Pro Sporter that's ported. It weighs, I think, nine and a half pounds, and I'm shooting, what's that Fioki load? It's a seven-eighth ounce. <laughs> it's like a 20-gauge load uh, just because I, I don't like recoil. Yeah. Not, hey, Rob, I've had a really great time with you on here. I wish we had more time, but, but we've run out. Uh, I want to thank you for being on. Thank you for being Rob Latham, and thanks for sharing all your exploits with me over the years. It's, it's been one of the things that I've enjoyed most about being in this industry is getting to know you and, and you know being considered one of your friends. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, Kelly. I love being your friend. Thanks for having me on. Okay, thanks. And I want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us for the last hour. This has been a great show. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for Ian for being here with me. Thanks for Cooper for coming in. Thanks for my co-host, Zev Nadler, who's sitting over there pouting because he didn't get on the air today. But, you know, that's the way it goes. We'll, we'll have a, a time when he'll spend more time on it. But I want all of you out there to, to go out and enjoy this great country, spend some time outdoors, do some shooting, um, really get to understand what it is that we love about the shooting sports, our Second Amendment, and this country. We'll see you next week.
Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.